We left Fresno on a real rainy afternoon, got to Venice at night, and our family moved to Electric Avenue near, right behind Abikini and 4th Avenue. And it was this old building, and uh, it was a tenement kind of apartment with a Murphy bed. And my parents were still asleep, and I woke up in the morning in my pajamas to step out. And it was like somebody had hit, like, the light switch. The sky was so blue, and there was all this beautiful vegetation around me, and I had never seen bougainvillea before. And in the patio of the building, uh, in between the landlady's house and the building, was this huge uh, patio, and it had every color of bougainvillea that was like two stories tall. And it was like the technicolors, you know, it was like, oh my God, all this color. And I instinctively knew that I was where I was supposed to be. Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Castle Heights edition. Today we talk with Lindsay Haley. Lindsay is a mom, a grandma, a poet, a playwright, and she grew up in Venice and then escaped to Fresno with her lowrider boyfriend at 14 years old. Remember that episode we did just a few weeks ago with the florist in South Robertson who met her husband at 13? This is her mother. So we're going to talk about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and Venice, and also Boyle Heights, and what it was like to be a teenage mom picking in the sweltering, hot, onion fields of Fresno. So get ready, people, for Lindsay Haley. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, everybody. I am here in Castle Heights with Lindsay Haley. Hello. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. How are you? I am fantastic. First of all, thank you for having me in your home, your very colorful, artistic home. Thank you. Um, I'm also excited to be in Castle Heights because this is a neighborhood I never knew about. I didn't know about it either until my daughter moved out here. (laughs) Do you want to describe where Castle Heights is? Castle Heights is kind of a weird little uh, turn, but I guess National and Robertson Mm -hmm. just kind of south of that is this a ralph's or a vons over here it's a vons so and that's on national it's like maybe east of where east of palms Mm -hmm. east of palms where palms turns into national boulevard so so we're kind of close to um culver city Mm -hmm. we're close to your daughter uh, uh uh brooke on uh what south robertson south robertson and I guess that's also maybe considered part of Castle Heights, Beverly Wood area. Right. Uh-huh. Um, just a little bit north of the 10. Yes. Conveniently located to the 10. Very conveniently <laughs> located to the 10. How long have you lived here? I've lived here five years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And before that, I lived in Inglewood for 20 years. And prior to that, I lived in Venice. Where did you live in Inglewood? I lived in Inglewood, like on Florence and Centinella, right before Centinella uh, 
ends close to um, the park. Mm-hmm. So, did you like living in Inglewood? I loved living in Inglewood. I actually nicknamed it Venice Numero Dos, <laughs> Venice uh, uh, Venice Number Two, because all of my neighbors uh, were either from Venice uh, or Santa Monica. Or uh, West L.A. You're friendly with Mike Bravo from Venice. Yes. And, and his family. Yeah. He talks about gentrification all the time. Oh, yeah. Was the was the, the movement from Venice to and Santa Monica to Inglewood, was that, were you guys being forced out? Did they raise the rents on you? What, what was the exodus all about? I, I would say that the exodus actually began when my generation started purchasing homes when they got married, and I would say as early as 77 maybe, mm-hmm. um, my generation got married really young. Um, and like out of high school soon thereafter, and they either bought in Inglewood or in the Valley. Because it was cheaper than in Venice. It was Venice. less expensive. Even then, it mm-hmm. was expensive to buy a house in Venice. Well, you you know, the prices of homes and the gentrification actually started. It was a slow at that time, but I would say as early as 76, 77. Mm-hmm. I remember being in my mom's uh, apartment carport in the alley and seeing a Rolls Royce drive through the alley. In Venice. Uh-huh. And we kind of looked at each other, my friends and I, that were hanging out down there. And we said, well, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, Dennis Hopper lived on Indiana and Fourth, I think. And then Tim Robbins also lived there. And uh, kind of like your fringy artists. Uh-huh. Uh, and... So we thought, okay, it's coming quick, and it didn't happen that quick. Right. So in 77, the houses were actually, um, it was getting expensive. And also, too, is that I think at that time, it was um, a lot of violence. The schools weren't very good. And so people wanted quieter neighborhoods and more suburban living. And Inglewood provided that. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, the demographics of Inglewood when you moved there? When I lived there, I would say, uh, I, I don't have the percentages, but I would say largely black and Latino. In fact, when I moved here five years ago, I moved in around January or February. And the following Christmas, or that Christmas... I had my places in Inglewood where I bought all my masa and the hojas and the chiles and everything in Inglewood. And so I went out there to Lenox to buy my masa at the carniceria that I always go to or panaderia. And then go to my market, Bilo. And and then I knew where my 99 cent store was and my nail salon. And so I ended up spending the whole day in Inglewood. And it wasn't until I was in the nail salon at about maybe five, four in the afternoon that I realized I had not seen a white person all day. Interesting. Yeah. And here, uh, there was an emergency where I needed a can of hominy for menudo or pozole that we were making. And I needed some extra lard. 
for the Masa, and I went to my Vons right here on National Boulevard and found out that they do not sell lard and they do not sell hominy. <laughs> so uh, for some of my purchases, I have to go outside of my neighborhood. <laughs> well, we're going to fix that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's also interesting for people to know um, that Inglewood wasn't always black. No, because I think that's what people think about South LA is that there's black pockets and Latino pockets, but the 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 secret is Latinos have always been here mm-hmm. and and have often lived in harmony with black people, and um, and that was what- certainly the case in in uh, Venice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't call it Oakwood then. I mean, Venice was just Venice, but. In the neighborhood that I lived in, which is now recognized as Oakwood, uh, it's large. Uh, back then, it was largely uh, black and brown, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you had your your uh, white uh, families living there too. But uh, everyone was lower income, mm-hmm. you know. And then you had your hippies, which was really wonderful. Uh, is 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 that what I'm seeing on these walls? Is, is this the, an influence of growing up in Venice during that hippie time? Absolutely. Well, I would say that the majority of my walls are covered by uh, Chicano artists mm-hmm. and um, gifts that I've received from them very generously and some pieces that I have purchased. But growing up in Venice, it was not uncommon to uh, walk home from school and see an artist working in uh, their garage and stopping and talking to the artist for an hour or two. So I saw working artists. Mm -hmm. And on Sunset and Fifth, there was a large complex that uh, where they rented out space to um, uh, artists who work with pottery. Mm-hmm. And so my brothers and sisters would go there and they'd lay, you know, they would let them play with clay and, you know, uh, burn their pieces and walk home with a clumpy ashtray or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't uncommon to, to be surrounded by the arts then. I think that you are a great person to be talking to today well, for many, many reasons. One of them is you raised a family in Venice, which I think a lot of people who are outsiders of L.A. would be afraid to do. Because Venice, especially in the 70s and 80s, had a reputation of having a lot of gangs, being a little rough around the edges, along with these these hippie people which some parents may not want their kids while talking to artists in their garage. You know what I'm saying? Uh What was your experience raising a family in Venice back then? Well, um, uh, let me back up a little bit in that uh, I moved away from Venice in 73. Um, I ran away with the lowrider next door. (laughs) That's how I put it. 
Uh, Michael and Brooke's dad uh, was from um, Fresno. Do you remember what kind of lowrider car he had? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course I do. It was a 65. And uh, when you, you know. 65 I, Chevy? Absolutely. Uh-huh. You know, 65 Chevy, uh, Impala. Yes. Super sport, you know, with the bucket seats. Okay. Now, they tell us today women are not impressed by cars. Were you impressed by this car? Hell yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He'd been living with his sister. He came down from Fresno, and his sister actually lived two doors down. Mm -hmm. And we knew the family, and my mom had babysat his uh, cousins or nieces and nephews. And um, so we knew the family. And and Mike had been living there for several months, and I didn't notice him until he got to 65. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I said, who's that guy? <laughs> Yeah, I'll make him my boyfriend. Really? <laughs> uh, well, how, how old so were you? How old were you at this? I point? was fourteen. Fourteen. Mm-hmm. And Mike was seventeen. Uh huh. And he was just absolutely gorgeous. You know what? This reminds me of Brooke and her husband. Yeah, yeah. She. What was she? Fourteen or thirteen when she met him at first? I think she was fourteen, and I think they started dating when she was sixteen. And. The age difference didn't bother you because you had done this. No. And then I wasn't your regular 14. You know, I mean, I, I like to say that by the time I was 12, growing up in Venice, I'd seen everything. Yes. I'd seen everything, and good and bad. You were born in Texas, right? El Paso. Yeah. What are some of the things that you saw? In 1969, my family moved to Venice from El Paso. And I remember that first morning waking up. We had a pit stop for a few months in Fresno. And Fresno in the winter is stark and cold and gray. And we left Fresno on a real rainy afternoon, got to Venice at night, and our family moved to Electric Avenue near right behind Abakinney and Fourth Avenue. And it was this old building. And uh, it was a tenement kind of apartment with the Murphy bed. <laughs> and my parents were still asleep. And I woke up in the morning in my pajamas to step out. And it was like somebody had hit like the light switch. The sky was so blue. And there was all this beautiful vegetation around me. And I had never seen bougainvillea before. And in the patio of the building, uh, in between the landlady's house and the building, was this huge uh, patio. And it had every color of bougainvillea that was like two stories tall. And it was like the technicolors, you know, it was like, oh, my God, all this color. And I instinctively knew that I was where I was supposed to be. And I was nine. Mm. And so... Um, I loved it. I mean, I couldn't wait to see hippies because I'd only seen them like on the Beverly Hills, you know, uh, you know, uh, hillbillies. Yeah. They had an, uh, an episode. And so I couldn't wait to see hippies with their beads and all of that. So and the beach at that time was pretty deserted. Really? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
uh, most so of the yours. yeah yeah most of the storefronts that you see now uh, were apartments. Huh. Yeah, or little shops or. So you you, you know. watched the Venice Boardwalk develop and bloom. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's when, like, about 76, 77, roller skating craze kind of started. Yeah. And then you saw vendors, and then those storefronts uh, that were apartments that were, like, communal living for a lot of hippies um, just became, you know, selling T-shirts and crap and stuff, and... (laughs) uh, you know, our attraction was let's go see the weirdos in Venice Beach. Nothing's changed. No, oh, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, they don't come to see our, our architecture, <laughs> love our music. It's like, let's go see the weirdos of Venice Beach, you know. Is it good for children to be around weirdos? It was for me. The school that I was enrolled in was Westminster, which is right on... Uh, Abikini. The back of our playground and the fence faced uh, what's now a dog park. They let us out for recess, and this band is playing music, and these hippies are starting to gather in. It was 11, and they started playing Led Zeppelin's A Whole Lot of Love, and that went on forever. (laughs) And so we come out for lunch and now the crowd is huge and all us kids are like looking out the fence up at the hippies having their love in and then people start taking off their clothes yeah you know (laughs) so yeah you know and and I was 10 you know and what I think one of the most unfortunate things I saw during that time too was uh people who had overdosed mm-hmm. and being pulled out of the build, you know, out of their apartments on a stretcher. I'd never seen that oh. before. What drugs had they overdosed Heroin. On? There was heroin back then. Oh, yeah. In Venice. Yeah, yeah. That is unfortunate. Yeah. We would walk from Venice Beach to the pier all the time. Which uh, pier? Santa Monica. Uh-huh. Um, Was Santa Monica Pier full of amusements and stuff like that? No amusements. Um, uh, they had the the um, what is it the the arcade? Yeah, there, and the the you know the carousel was there. So so the carousel and like pinball machines at yeah. the arcade. Yeah, and like uh, food ball. vendors and you know uh, food vendors. They they had an ice cream place that we liked. I I gotta say. This sounds like an idyllic childhood. Yeah, but it was scrappy. My mother had an aunt that had li- lived in Venice. And she remembers coming out as a teenager when she was 16 and loving it and having gone to POP, Pacific Ocean Park. And she would tell us these stories about the roller coaster and how they had the this tank of mermaids. and And so... P.O.P. had closed the summer before. And so here we are on this trip down, you know, oceanfront walk. And she's pointing things out and it's all closed. And it just looks really scary. And, you know, and and she goes, that's the restaurant, the fancy restaurant. And it's all boarded up. (laughs) 
And then we got down to Main Street to like a little gift shop. And there was just this lady smoking behind the counter looking really just ugh. <laughs> and all of Main Street smelled like a big bar, you know, <laughs> uh, like cigarettes and, and stale beer. Yeah. And so we go into this gift shop and the postcards were bent. They were so old and dusty. And I thought to myself, where did my mother bring me to, you know? <laughs> so it was dusty. It was, by this time, I guess better places had nicer peers. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But, you know, uh, I worked with a woman who grew up in Mar Vista and she said that they had strict orders not to cross Lincoln Boulevard. Really? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about you. You meet this lowrider, mm -hmm. very romantic. Mm -hmm. you, you you two go to Inglewood. No, we go to Fresno. You moved to Fresno. Yeah. Did you want to move to Fresno? Yeah, because I wanted to be an organizer for uh, Cesar Chavez. Really? Yeah. You're. Are you a socialist? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm a person who cares. How old were you when you, when you wanted to do this? Uh, 14. But now, going back to Venice, ben Venice was a hotbed of political activity at the yep. time. I went to school with kids who had free Angela Davis buttons on. Nice. And um, Black Panthers, Brown Berets. Uh, several community centers. Did you identify with any of these groups? Were you a member of any of these? Not a member, but I ident certainly identified as being Chicana. And the Chicano political movement was coming up at the time. And so when um, the Chicano moratorium uh, march happened on August 29th in 70, mm -hmm. uh, we had buses, community buses, that were going to take people to the demonstration. Because I'm an ignorant Midwesterner uh -huh. who did not grow around, grow up around a lot of uh, uh, Latinos, Chicana means uh, Mexican roots, but born in the USA. Yes. Great. It's more political than, you know, just identifying as Mexican-American. So, so Chicano means more yeah. than my grandma is from Texas. Right. It means I am liberal? I'm kind of like a Black Panther, but I'm brown uh, instead of black? Mm, no, Mexican-American with a political awareness of your roots. I would put it that way. Okay. Of your roots in the United States, the political struggles here. Um, Fighting against the... Oppression, racism. There you go. Yeah. You okay. know, uh, the redlining. You know, why don't we have generational wealth? Right. You know, and seeing those injustices. And so, you, And you learned this in school? No. Where'd you learn this? On the street, my brother. <laughs> on the street. Who taught you on the street? These hippies? 
Uh, hippies, and also uh, there were a great a big number of Chicano activists, Chicano Chicana activists. Oh, really? In Venice, there were community centers, and uh, there were a lot of publications like free presses. And I love to read, so I would read these newspapers, and I became politically aware at, at 14 at 11 10 were you also a good student in school were you studying there too yeah I was a good student uh but when I was at Westminster in the fifth grade a friend of mine you know we had gotten a new teacher um Miss Newman and she was teaching us and and I said oh Miss Newman she's our new teacher she's new to the school and my friend Winnie, who's African American, said, uh, "You know, she's not a good teacher." And I said, "Why?" And she goes, "They come here to be punished. Nobody wants to teach us." <laughs> Do you think that was true? I don't think so, but um, I kind of gave up on school by by the time I'd reached junior high, the seventh grade. I wasn't doing homework. I wasn't, you know, but I read a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious all the time. Well, I can't blame you. If right outside your door, there's all this excitement going on, this political stuff, drugs and sex and rock and roll, how is? How do they expect a, a teenager to focus? <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess, you know, and then throw lowriders and cruising into the mix, you know? I mean, Okay, where'd you guys cruise? Oh, we would go up PCH to Temescal Canyon. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, when I first moved here in the 80s, mid-80s, there was still cruising going on in Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, yeah. You know, well, we'd, we would go to Whittier Boulevard. East L.A. East L.A. Right. Those were the Sunday night cruises. Yeah. And uh, and your mom was okay with all this? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I left at 14. <laughs> were you sneaking out at 13 to go and do this? Yes. And she had three other kids? So yeah. So she was busy? Uh, she was busy, and um, I started making my own money babysitting yeah. and uh, ironing. Uh, for, you know, the guys on the block, you know, some friends. I, I knew how to do, you know, the creases on the khakis really well. Oh. And and uh, the military pleats on the Pendletons. And uh-huh. Okay, so, again, I'm so happy to be talking with you, too. Oh, you're welcome. Because when, you. when, when we hear about groupies with Led Zeppelin, you're bringing up Led Zeppelin, with... Um, Groupies with uh, David Bowie, T-Rex, all these great stars of the late 60s, early 70s, and how they were with 14-year-old girls. They say, well, it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that, too, that you cruising at 13 in East L.A., it's different than if we saw a 13-year-old today in a car? What's your take on that? Probably. Probably. Yeah, because at 13, I came across some men that I should not have been with mm-hmm. and didn't know that I was being exploited. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I was, n- nothing serious, you know, thank God. 
Were these things happening to your 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 friends, your best friends? It did happen to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, did you guys talk about it and say this terrible thing happened, or I, boy, did I dodge a bullet with this one? No, no, no. I mean, um, not that I know of. You know, and with me, I was able to dodge that bullet. You know, uh, my best friend's uh, mother, uh, my Nina. Um, I shared it with her. It's like. Oh, you know, Sammy from the meat market and I are talking on the phone. And she goes, how old is he? You know, and she, he's got no business talking to you, kind of. And I, yeah. I was like, why? He's so nice and he's so cute, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, and, and she's like, no, he's got no business talking to you. And she must have told something to Sammy because he stopped talking to me. Interesting. You know? Yeah. You know, so maybe the awareness wasn't there. I would say, I would probably say the awareness wasn't there. Until you ended up in a sticky situation that you got out of. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I was, I got out of it, you know, but nothing bad happened to me. So why did you trust this 16-year-old boy with his Chevy Impala? Uh, he was 17. <laughs> That's worse. Yeah. No, uh, I didn't think like a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, even when I was 11, I I was hanging out with people three years older than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess my, my state of mind was just older. Yeah. You know? Um, and so... Yeah, it was it was just a different time, and mm-hmm. and when I was fourteen, I I would like to think that maybe I had the mind of a twenty year old. Mm-hmm. Now reflecting back on it, one one of my earlier episodes in Hollywood was a man about your age who said he who also lived in East L A at the time, who said he would go into Hollywood and go to the movie theaters, and in the back row were girls by themselves and you would he would start talking to them and they would just kind of make out in, oh, wow. in the back of the movie theater and he he too was like 14 or 15 years old and it made me think and now with your story it made me think that young teens in LA were kind of grown up a little bit and doing stuff that those of us in the Midwest wouldn't do until we were in college. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think living here in the city, just you're exposed to more. And then also, too, I mean, in the 70s, it was like that uh, free love kind of thing. You know, I mean, uh, I'd make out, but I was still a virgin when I left. Yeah. You know. So the free love trickled down to elementary or, or middle school kids, junior high school kids. I would say so. In that there was no in shame. That, so so yeah. if, if you had made out with this meat market boy, uh-huh. nobody would tease you about it. No, you still had to watch your reputation. Oh. You know, uh, maybe that's a Mexican thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it was different for others, but I knew that my virginity was my ticket out. So everything but. Everything but. Or just about. You know, 
I was still a good Catholic at the time. And you were Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'd I, go to confession on Saturday night. What church were you going to? St. Clement's. In Venice. In Venice. Because I, I do see a lot of, uh, I see some Jesuses, I see some Marys. I see a lot of Marys around here. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm Not that I'm like super crazy religious. I've just inherited altars from loved ones, especially oh. my mother-in-law. It's very sweet. And so uh, when she passed away and they were clearing out the house and and my sister-in-law passed away, uh, it was about to get thrown out. And it's like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. You know? And then the palm crosses were gifts. Where, I don't, where's the palm crosses? Oh, Across every doorway. It's supposed to protect the house. Oh. You know? And so, um, yeah, no, a lot of them are gifts. And okay. so it's not that I'm super crazy religious. You, but, I uh, am. You yeah. can be. And then you have to have the mandatory um, <laughs> Last Supper <laughs> near your dining room table. Oh, is that the story? Yeah. Because so, I have a Last Supper. I need to put it by my where I eat? Where you eat. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they always go in the dining room. And that one I got from the 99 cent store when I moved here. I said, oh, I need a, less, a Last Supper, you know, so... <laughs> I found that at the 99 cents. I got mine in Tijuana. Oh, see there? Yours is, oh, you're OG. Is it, you think so? <laughs> I guess so. I, I think I'm know. just cheap. <laughs> it was it was big and it was like five bucks. Hey. You know? Yeah. I was like, I think I need this. Yeah, and they get passed down. Okay, this is a very ignorant question. When you went to Fresno, mm-hmm. did you meet Cesar Chavez? No. No, what ended up happening was uh, my husband's family were migrant farm workers. Mm-hmm. And so when he discussed that he was going to be moving to Fresno the next morning, this was on a Friday night, he goes, I want you to come with me. I said, I can't go with you. You guys were just dating at the time. Yeah, we were dating. hmm and he said... You were um, like, I'm 14. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, I never felt 14. Never felt 14. <laughs> I felt 17 and equal to him. <laughs> and so um, I said, you know, I've always wanted to... He goes, I could sell the lowrider <gasps> and uh, we could get a chopper and... Uh, you know, be migrant farm workers and follow Cesar Chavez and organize for him. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a plan. And so we ended up moving to Lodi first. And then... Was your, was your mom okay with all this? No. <laughs> no. And I told him my mom's going to get mad. She's going to, you know. But by that time, because I ran away with him... Um, and I intended to stay with him forever. I mean, you know, and one, if things went bad, it was like, I knew I couldn't move back home because the guys knew that I was no longer, that I'd ran away with this guy and, um, making me an easier target, you know, whatever. And 
you know, um, but, you know, I knew about birth control and stuff because when I was 12, I worked for the Venice Free Clinic on a summer job where you were supposed to be 15 for the summer youth employment program. <laughs> but I worked at the, they placed me uh, at the Venice Family Clinic or the Venice Free Clinic. And so I was working as an interpreter. And it was the prenatal clinic and the immunization clinic. And then in the evenings, which I rarely did, but I would if they needed somebody, sex clinic. People would go to get birth control. I knew about birth control because of the prenatal care. And So you translated for... Uh, Spanish-speaking people and uh, the staff. There was a couple of incidents that were really interesting. This is why I say by the time I was 12, I knew everything. I'd seen everything. Was There was a woman who had no uh, Mexican uh, immigrant who had had no prenatal care and was coming in like in her last trimester. And she had gonorrhea. And so they asked for her husband to come in and the only time that they could come in was after he got off work. And I was going to have to interpret. Uh, no, he had syphilis. And he did not tell his wife. And so I had to interpret this. And the man um, was very upset, grabbed his children and his wife and said that we were liars and stormed out of there. Mm. And so we never saw the lady again. Um, Another, and then we try to do some follow-up visits, go to the house, and no one would answer. And uh, another time, a lot of men were coming in with uh, gonorrhea, and they were pinpointing it to a prostitute that lived off Abikini above a bar, or, or near a bar. But if you see Abikini on the top, second floors, those used to be apartments. Mm. And so... Here I go, 12-year-olds, and I'm, you know, going to find this prostitute that has been giving men in Venice gonorrhea. <laughs> so, so I knew about birth control as a result of working at the clinic. And hookers. And hookers. And that men would go to hookers. Yeah. And men would get embarrassed and angry if, if, if they yeah. were exposed as being... Um, Cheaters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I get up to Lodi, we leave Saturday, so I don't have time to get uh, birth control. And I thought, the whole world is like Venice, you just walk into a clinic and you ask for birth control and they give it to you. You know, you, you have your exam and that's it. And so there were no clinics in Lodi. And actually, um, you know, we had been working out in the fields, and so I, we had the $40 to go pay a gynecologist for me to go get my birth control pills. They would not give them to me because I didn't have my mother with me. And so two months later, I was pregnant with my son. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Blessing? I, Blessing in disguise? Yeah. Silver lining? Well, of course, of course. Children are blessing. Yeah. He deserved a better mother, though. I mean, how, oh. how can you be a mom at 15? Is he in jail? No. Then he did, you did a fine job. Yeah, no. It's, 
You did a fine job. Thank you. And you tried. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. You know, um, you tried. Uh, you know. So okay. Um, so you're 15 years old, and you're a mom mm-hmm. in Fresno. In Fresno, and uh, working out in the fields. And what 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 uh, what are you picking in the fields? Uh, I'm chopping cotton. And you were a cotton picker? No, chopping. By that time, they had machinery to pick cotton. So, so the the cotton the cotton machine picks it. Mm-hmm. And you, when you say chop, chopping cotton is when the plants are very small. They're maybe less than four inches, and you go with a hoe and make space. Uh, you go down these huge long rows, and you make space for the cotton to grow. Now. People who might not be Californians who are listening to this, of which there are a lot. Oh, good. Fresno can get very hot. Oh, and it can get very cold. And cold. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, one of the Huel Hauser episodes, Huel is obviously a huge influence on this podcast, talked about how there were caves in Fresno for the natives Oh wow! to chill out in during the summer when it was too hot to be outside. Wow, they were smarter than us. <laughs> <laughs> so so my question is, were you out there in the, the sweltering heat? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's when the harvests start coming in. That's when you start picking tomatoes and grapes. Uh, and uh, the grapes that are picked out there are some for wine, but the majority of it is for raisins. And I did not know that raisins come from grapes until I got to Fresno. <laughs> I still, I think a lot of people are just learning this. Well, you know, there you go. You get a lesson today. So you're out there doing real manual labor. Oh, yeah. While you were pregnant. And then once after you were a mom, you're back out there because that's your job, right? Yeah. No, I was not out in the fields when I was pregnant with Mike. Good. Uh, he, uh, Mike worked... Uh, my husband, Mike, worked at a foundry, and uh, we were, you know, we we were doing all right, and I wanted to go work out in the fields because I wanted my own money. Right. And I was always used to having my own money and or contributing or, you know, and so my mother-in-law was still working out in the fields, and I went to work with her. And so uh, we started chopping cotton, and then, you know, once the cosecha comes in, the harvest, then you're picking uh, cucumbers, uh, all of that. The la- and then the last time that I stepped foot into a field was I was nine months pregnant with Brooke. It was about mm. three weeks before I gave birth. And at that point, I swore I was never going to do this again. Because it's really hard. and It's hot. It's, and it's hot. It's, you know. Uh, approximately what year is this? Uh, I was 22, so 81. How much do you, if you remember. No, 70. I don't know. Late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, yeah. How much would a, 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 a farm worker make in a day doing this kind of work? Back then, if you made, uh, you know, I think when I first started, we made like $22 a day in the 70s. 
did uh did was it based on the weight of the product that you were bringing in or just they just work you and everybody gets 22 bucks at the end of the day uh with chopping cotton it was paid hourly it was like by the day mm-hmm. um a lot of it uh when you're you're picking vegetables is done by the bucket and you get a little card and every time you fill it up with tomatoes and then you walk it over and they they're putting it into these huge trucks and they they stamp your card or put a hole in your card. Were you really good? Did you have more buckets than other people? I was average. Were you amazed by the people who could do it really fast? Oh yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> you know? And then I'm kind of small and <clears throat> and so carrying a big bucket, you're talking about maybe 15 pounds, 10 pounds of tomatoes, and when having to walk them over to the truck across rows, you know, the worst job, the worst, absolute worst, was picking uh, onions. Because a, uh, a truck goes in ahead of you the day before, and it digs up the onions, and it also runs over onions, you get out there in 112, 113 degrees. The smell of rotten onions is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you get paid by the sack. You got to fill up this burlap sack that's 50 pounds. Wow. And that's maybe $10. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, and that stench stays with you for days. So do you have a... Uh, uh a heightened appreciation for the fruits and vegetables that end oh, up yeah. on your table now? Oh, yeah. Should should all of us? Absolutely. Should we all think that none of these onions got here by magic? That Yeah, They no. went through what you had to go through? Yeah. I mean, people are still out there. I mean, just because I left doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, I can see it now. I mean, people um, working so fast. And so hard because, you know, they're getting paid by the piece. You know, it isn't an hourly wage. And, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, it it gets really cold out there. You know, down south, you know, uh, uh, Calexico, that area, you know, asparagus, broccoli, cabbage, uh, that comes in during the winter time, and it's wet, it's foggy, it's cold. And my mother-in-law, my God, that woman was a saint. She had eight kids, you know, and she would be out there because she had to, pregnant, you know, and a lot of people don't have that choice or that benefit. You're tearing up a little bit. Is it because you're thinking of her? And women like her? Yeah. And that it still exists today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still, you know, I mean, summertime was nice because there was work and you had money in Fresno. Uh, people were going to the park, you know, enjoying themselves. Winters were harsh mm. because there wasn't work, you know. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it... it you you know you're you're eating a lot of top ramen
this, the stories you've told me already are just fascinating, and I've not seen these in movies. You're a playwright. Hopefully, you've written some of these down as plays. Uh, they, uh, bits of it creep in, you know. Okay, so also, I'm black. And one of my first apartments was in Inglewood in the 80s. Okay. And one of the things that my black neighbors told me not to do was to go to Boyle Heights or to East L.A. Because back then, black and brown people were, not people, but gangs were fighting each other. And they said it was dangerous to go over there. And so I didn't really discover any of that side of town until probably the last 10 years. Oh, wow. And I was shocked at how close it was to me in Hollywood. You just go right down Sunset, mm-hmm. and it turns into Cesar Chavez. Uh-huh. Your man got a street named after him. <laughs> <laughs> and I never knew much about tamales or um, just a lot of the foods that I love. Yeah. And I feel a little bit ripped off by that really bad advice that I got. Well, back in the 80s, it was probably good advice. You think so? Yeah, because everybody was shooting at each other around here in the 80s, okay. you know, in the 90s, too. And thank God it's, it's uh, slowed down quite a bit. But, yeah, you know, uh, Boyle Heights, to me, was almost like a... Uh, first of all, uh, there's a lot of people from El Paso in Boyle Heights. Huh. All it takes is one cousin. <laughs> Come over here. Well, that you makes know? sense. Why yeah. why be in uh, Silver Lake if your cousins are in down Boyle the road? Yeah. yeah. And it's a migration, I think, that's uh, been going on since the 30s or the 40s. Also, it's close to the train station and the bus station. Right. Well, a lot of people that ended up in Boyle Heights, from my understanding, is people who were laying down track. For the railroad. Oh. Oh. That makes sense. Right? You know? Um, I, thought, I thought those were Chinese people, though. No, they were Mexicanos also. How about that? Yeah, my mother-in-law's mother, her uncle, uh, started laying track around Chihuahua. They were from, they lived in El Paso, and they ended up in Oxnard because of the train tracks. So, so how did you make your way to Boyle Heights? I'd been writing since I was a kid. And I met someone who introduced me to writers who had been journalists and uh, suggested that maybe I start working as a journalist to hone my writing skills. And I was working as at a uh, credit union at the time with a terrible boss that <laughs> screamed And uh, she yelled at me one day, and I said, you know, screw this, I've had it. I got the yellow, uh, you know, the yellow pages out, and I started looking at newspapers. And I called a newspaper in East, it just happened to be in Boyle Heights, Uh uh, the East Side Journal, Belvedere Citizen. And I spoke with the general manager, his name is Corky Perez, uh, was a labor union organizer knew everybody in Boyle Heights. And he told me to come on down for an interview. What a time. Yeah. But by that time... Wait, 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 though. uh You just picked up the yellow pages, dialed the number, Mm -hmm. Corky picks up, and says, come on down. Yeah. That doesn't happen today, you know. Yeah. No. 
Well, also, too, is that I'd already had published some articles. There was the very first one that had that I published was with the Venice Beachhead. Yes. And uh, so and then I, I published a few others and then hounded Lowrider magazine like, you know, I want to do articles for you. I want to do articles for you. And my very first story with them was ended up being a cover story, and it was interviewing Paul Rodriguez, the comedian. What what year was this? The early eighties, mid eighties. Yeah, you did a cover story for Lowrider magazine. Yeah, and I became a regular, uh, you know, a freelancer with them. That was my first paid article. It was fifty bucks. Wow! And so, I had sent my clippings to Corky, and so when I met with him. He said, we want to start an entertainment section. And the newspaper was the Belvedere Citizen Eastside Journal, community newspaper, uh, very well respected, and their offices were right on First and Dittman in Boyle Heights. And um, he said, but I can't hire you as a journalist. I want to hire you as a salesperson sell advertising, and then you can write whatever you want. You'll have an entertainment section. And so that was such a huge blessing for me because during this time, there's a Chicano art renaissance going on. And news was coming to me uh, about the Chicano punk bands, art shows, you know, and so I started to meet some of these artists and became friends with them and create a community. And some of their artwork is here. There's Gronk. That was a beautiful gift of Tormenta that he gave me long, long, long time ago. And this, this reminds me of Breakfast at Tiffany's a little bit. Yeah. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. 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 No, Tormenta. You is um, you always see the back of her. You never see the front, because she has turned, you know, she's turned away from the world. Oh, and so that's an ongoing figure for him, a symbol. He's he's a Chicano artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, his uh, he's known as Gronk. Okay. His name is Glugio Gronk Nicrando. <laughs> he grew up in Boyle Heights or East LA. And went to Garfield High, where his art teacher told him that he was never going to amount to anything and to forget the writing. Isn't that the best when they do that? Yeah. Because it's, it, it's, it's the most, it's the greatest blessing you'll ever get. Yeah, and he's the only Chicano artist who has had a solo show at LACMA. <gasps> yeah. Why just him? Why? Right? No disrespect to him, but... Why? Why? Exactly. Exactly. Do you need to be I'm a, sick and tired of it. Do you it. need to be a guest curator for LACMA when they reopen? No, it depends on who's on their board, you know. You wouldn't even accept it if uh, if it's not presented properly. I don't know. You know, so at this point, when I'm at the newspaper, uh, art collectors have uh, started collecting Chicano art. You know, there's a renaissance, an arts renaissance, and then you got the Chicano punk movement, you got Los Lobos coming out, you know, and... Were you a huge fan of Los Lobos? I was. Yeah, I wasn't aware of them. And then 
um, their publicist reached out to me and said, you know, they're coming out with their second album. And second album was that uh, the the wolf? How will the yeah, wolf survive? Yeah, how the wolf will survive. So I had a copy of the cassette before anybody else did. <gasps> yeah, and then what I went to see album them too. Oh, oh, it's a great album. I love they, it. And, and you know, it's funny because they they did hang out with the punks. Yeah, like X and the Blasters. Yeah, yeah. but they weren't punk. No, no, no. Which was, which was so sweet about them. They they have like this very gentle romantic style, this traditional style, but they're their own thing. Yeah, yeah, no. They're, you know, a band from East LA. That's right. You know, they did their covers and, you know, they did their own original work. I got to see them live for the very first time at the Anti Club. I've mm-hmm. been there on Melrose. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they... rest in peace, Anti Club. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, and, and, and that part of Melrose, because I when I saw a band there, there was like Melrose. I was like, oh, I love Melrose. And and I was living on the West Side. You had to just keep going east. Mm-hmm. And then it got scary, and mm-hmm. you had to keep going east. Uh-huh. And then finally, you made it to the <laughs> Anti Club, and I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. No, it was the Blasters. And uh, Los Lobos. And so I'm seeing them and I'm, I'm wondering, how's this crowd going to, you know, and, you know, a bunch of punks with like crazy blue hair and mohawks and what have you dancing to rancheras. Really? Yeah. You know, and I was like, I love this. Okay. Again, this is what makes L.A. so beautiful. Right? Like yes. so beautiful. Yes. Because I don't think this is happening in New York City or San Francisco even. I don't know. I don't think so. You know, and then we've got the best Mexican food too. You know, yeah. but so I worked for the newspaper for about three years and was also a freelance writer. Um, majority of, yeah, I would say Chicano, covering Chicano Latino arts and culture. Yes. And then... Um, I just couldn't keep that up and a day job and raising two kids at the same time. So my writing career kind of took a, you know, put it on the back burner mm-hmm. and would still do poetry readings every once in a while, but wasn't publishing work. And then once the kids kind of gr- got grown and did their own thing, then I joined <clears throat> A friend of mine was teaching a class on how to develop the solo show. That's how I got introduced to theater. And then I found out about Casa 0101 in Boyle Heights, uh, who had uh, playwriting classes. And I started taking playwriting classes there. And its founder, Josefina Lopez, um, I had written... A, I was with another theater company before that, Tierra, and I was performing my one-woman show with them uh, called Venice uh, Black and Brown at the time. And now I've called it, yeah, I've, I've done it a couple of other times, and it's called Black, Brown, and Bruised. <laughs> and it's about growing up in Venice and seeing the gentrification, the crack epidemic, mm-hmm. guns, all of that, but also the sweet side of growing up with hippies and you know black panthers and all of that so 
you're writing. Yes, I go back. You're editing, you're selling ads, you're raising kids. Were you always a performer at heart too? Or was that a stretch for you? That was a stretch. Uh, what it what happened was uh, there was this time period where I wasn't writing anymore. I mean, you know, and not not professionally at least. I was still doing poetry readings every once in a while, but I was now working for the city of Santa Monica. Hmm. Had the nice cushy job with the pension. Uh, Brooke had moved out. Michael was already out on his own. My son had been out on his own for. It's funny quite some you time. didn't smile brightly when you said you had a cushy job with Santa Monica. Did you consider that like a sellout job? No, 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 not at all. all right, My good. God, no. What was, what was no, the title? They, um, oh, I was the receptionist for City Hall. So I was the voice in the face of Santa Monica, and I was so proud. What years were this? This was uh, 1999 uh, till I was offered a retirement deal during the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh, so, so until recently? Yeah. So oh. I worked with them for 20, 20 year, 22 years? I don't know, 20-something wow. years. Okay, Strange, strange that I know this, but you, Santa, the city of Santa Monica had a black female police chief. Yeah, who came from Inglewood, Jackie. <laughs> I love Jackie, but I Jackie like, Seabrooks. I feel like she just kind of came and went. I I saw her a few times doing press conferences. I think there was some murder near SMC or whatever, like some some nasty stuff, mm-hmm. and. She was fantastic. Oh, she was wonderful. Last I heard from her, I think she was going to start law school. She's relocated to Dallas. She was amazing. She was wonderful. Interesting. Yeah, I love Jackie. Maybe what it was was she was the chief of police in Santa Monica and then Inglewood wanted her as chief. One of the two happened. Like she switched. Yeah, no, she was a captain. Right. With Santa Monica, became the chief of police at Inglewood. That's right. And then came back to Santa Monica as the chief. Exactly. Yeah. You should have seen her send off. It was so cool. They they have an old, like, 1960s, 50s black and white that they use for parades. And, uh-huh. and uh, she was driven in the back seat and sent, you know... Okay, so we, we've just lost all of our anti-fascists who were in love with you minutes ago <laughs> when you were pro-Chicana and, and all that. Now you're, you're hanging out with cops. You're part of the government. Well, you have to be. You, got, you have to? No. Is I, that the I, best place to, to make change is from within? Sometimes. I think it takes both. You know, it really does take both. I remember a young Chicana um, who was uh, in college and her partner was majoring in social studies and social justice kind of stuff, right? And I asked her, well, what's your major? She goes, business. And she said it kind of like, and I said, no, we need us everywhere. Yes. We need us everywhere. Yes. You know, we need cops in our in our you know, that are going to approach a backyard party and know that it's cool. Right. You know, just because people are black and brown, that not everybody's going to be friggin' packing 
or that, you know, somebody's not going to get shot, mm-hmm. you know, that can, you know, pinpoint the identifiers. So, yeah, we need us everywhere, you know, and I was really proud to work for the city of Santa Monica. And considering that I grew up in the area, and this one thing my mom did, oh, I, I, I owe the job to my mother. Because when I was growing up, before I left to Fresno, and she would find out that I was ditching or misbehaving, she would plead with me, please, Lindsay, at least get your high school diploma so you could get a job at the city, meaning the city of Santa Monica. And so she got to see it before she passed away. How fantastic. Yeah. And so working for the city of Santa Monica, living in Inglewood now because I got gentrified out of Venice. (laughs) And I would say, like, is this it? Like, what do I do now? You know, like, and I was, my mom had passed away. I remarried and uh, my husband passed away and think going through like a low level depression no let's call it what it is I was depressed Mm -hmm. and at that time I couldn't drive long distances or get on the freeway because of anxiety Mm. it's something I didn't experience before and so I took the bus to go see Lily Tomlin's solo show at the Amundsen and so I'm sitting in the audience and I'd always gone to plays And the lights go off, and they come back on, and she's walking on stage. And God spoke to my my heart and said, do this. And I went, what? No. Like, So the bus ride home, I'm thinking, how do you do this? Do you take acting first? Do you write? What? Turns out, a couple days later, I find out that a friend who is a performance artist and a writer for theater now has a class with the city of Santa Monica that she's gotten a grant for at Highways and on teaching women how to develop the solo show and write for theater. And somebody has just dropped out and there's room for me. And there I go. You're a religious person. Yeah. Do you think God is looking out for me right now? For you, for everyone. No, in, in that situation where you see Lily Tomlin, you feel it, mm-hmm. and then all these other miraculous steps happen. Well, yeah, you know. It, How do you explain it? God. You do explain yeah. it that way. Yeah. Well, I remember being back at the Eastside Journal Belvedere Citizen. Now, let's take into account that I dropped out of school in the eighth grade. My formal education ended there. I'm covering plays and going to like the Mark Taper and stuff, things I couldn't necessarily afford before or at that time, going on press passes. And I remember going to see In the Belly of the Beast at the Mark Taper. And at that point, not being a religious person, actually having had an argument with God and not believing in him for 10 years, and so this during that time. And I knew it was God speaking to me, but he said, this is your classroom, learn. Not knowing that 30 years later, I would be taking writing courses, playwriting courses at Casa 0101, 
a, 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 you know, a playhouse, a theater that was opened by Josefina Lopez, who grew up in the area and saw the necessity of having Latino and Latina and Chicano Chicana stories on stage. Mm -hmm. She knew the importance of that and made room for me. So I had previously written a short play when I was with Tierra called Favorite Cousins. It was maybe 40 minutes long. And uh, one of the actresses, Raquel Salinas, had told me, give it to her, give it to her. And I was like, no, no, you know. <laughs> so I went ahead and I did that. Josefina read it. And she said, you know, your play's too short to produce by itself. But I'm going to choose, you know, she had already given me another idea for a short play. And I had written it about old cholas, you know, being stuck at a senior facility and having beef and fighting with each other with their walkers and canes. <laughs> so I'd written another short play based on her idea and I named it Plato. And she goes, we're going to take your two short plays. I'll select about two or three others and we're going to produce a short play festival called Chicanas Cholas y Chisme. And you're going to produce it. I go, I don't know nothing about producing. And she's like, no, I'm going to get you together with Claudia Duran, who's been teaching directing at Casa. She knows how to produce. The two of you will produce it. And so Chicanas Cholas y Chisme is now in its 11th season. Yes. Yes. And, and we can see it? March. It opens March 10th. At Casa 0101, Friday and Saturday, 8 p.m., and Sundays at 3. And it runs for four weekends. This is and fantastic. And we have it uh, every March for Women's uh, History Month. And so Claudia and I uh, became producing partners, and I produced it with Claudia for the first six years. I took a couple years break, and now I'm back for the second year, you know, for the last two years. Well, this is fantastic. I'm so glad I talked to you now, because we can hype it. Yeah, well, thank you. Because this is going to come out in about a week. Oh, good. So this will give people time. Well, Chicanas, Cholas y Chisme, being the dream child of Josefina, was that um, it's a entirely Latina-driven production. The playwrights, uh, they're 10-minute ten uh, pieces, and they're written by Latinas, directed by Latinas, and we teach all of the women how to produce a show, so all of the women are associate producers. And we have had, we have staged maybe going on 160 new works. Wow. Yeah. And also taken a shorter version of that to the New Orleans In Fringe Festival. How about that? Yeah. And to Santa Cruz and to San Diego and Tijuana. Okay. I'm going to ask the most basic question now. Mm -hmm. Let's say I want to make a, a, a whole evening out of watching this, these, these short plays. In Boyle Heights, where should I eat first? 
Well, there's Allen B's across the street. Home of the, the famous bean and cheese burrito. Right. But there's also Casafina. Casafina is on Breed, uh, closer to Mariachi Plaza. Okay. And it is owned by Josefina and Emanuel. What? Her husband. Yeah. What's good there? Everything. Uh, obviously. But what Everything. do you eat there? Uh, their chicken soup. Their chicken soup is so good. I'm so glad you said that. I would never order chicken soup. Yeah, and they have uh, uh, homemade corn tortillas. And uh, I, I ask for their spicy chile, their salsa. Very good. Their sopes are really good. Carne asada, carnitas are to die for. And then it's a full bar. And on your Sunday matinees, uh, you there's a mariachi brunch that you could start off with. I know they have mariachis. So you can have mariachis, you know, get your 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 little paloma, your margarita, your menudo, and then stroll over to the theater and have a wonderful evening. Um, and if you're going to be drinking, you can take the gold line. Yeah, yeah, the gold line's right there. Right there. Yeah. Uh, well, that short play that I gave to Josefina and um, was the 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 spinoff to to uh, Chicanas Cholas y Chisme is a full length play now, and it is going to be produced and staged at Casa Zero One Zero One in uh, April. So this is my, uh, the world premiere of my full length play, Favorite Cousins opening on April the 28th and running to May 19th, my very first. Fantastic. I know. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me into your beautiful home. I'm glad we did not do it in the patio. Yeah, right? I'm glad I swept. <laughs> you know, I was almost about to say, well, you know, the, the day's nice. Let's go outside. I but almost said that too as you were showing me around. I know. It's like, this is normally like where I my my clothes rack, but I put. Don't look in the closet. <laughs> you, you, it's a beautiful place. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. How great was Lindsay? You know who we'd eat bean and cheese burritos with in Boyle Heights? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, have a slice of pizza on Venice Beach on us. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinky, Ben Welch, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, Adam Shorn, Ben from Down Under, and Chris from the ATX. To be a Patreon, go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you have to do is PayPal us or Venmo, 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website or Medium blog forever. Just send your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com on PayPal or Venmo. It's just busblog. Want to support us, but you bet your best friend it would never snow in LA? <laughs> no problem. You can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Oh my God, post two. I have not seen very many people post to be a post tour. Yeah, you can even tweet something nice about this. Anytime you see me tweet about an episode, retweet it. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them that here and else. <laughs> tell them 
how here in LA is spelled. And then it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and even Amazon. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who's probably played with a few members of Los Lobos, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgon and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and farm workers everywhere. Doing what they can for their families in the worst conditions, like the severe weather we're having right now, just to put food on your table. Thank you for all you do. do.